Welcome to the very first episode of Dog-Eared Nightmares. I am LP Hernandez. You might hear some guests call me Les, and that's fine. They're friends. My very first guest is Celso Hurtado. We're going to talk about the ghost tracks. Stick around after the episode, and I'll tell you more about what I hope Dog-Eared Nightmares will be. Thank you for joining us. Now, on to the episode. Welcome to the first ever episode of Dog-Eared Nightmares. I am LP Hernandez. I'm here with Celso Hurtado. We're here to talk about The Ghost Tracks, which is a book that came out almost two years ago at this point. There is a sequel to it. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first, we're going to talk about Celso himself, his relationship to horror, and we're going to talk about The Ghost Tracks. So... To begin with, Celso, I consider us friends, but most of what we've talked about up to this point has been um, writing related, either my writing or your writing. So I don't honestly know what your relationship to horror is. So mm -hmm. give us a little bit of your background. How did you find your way into horror? So um, I think the answer to that starts way back when I was a kid. Um, my parents had rented Alien, the first Alien on VHS, and um, they had been drinking, so they left me alone with it and said, hey, you should watch this. We heard it's great. And so unsuspectingly, I watched it, and I knew it was supposed to be scary, and thought, ah, it's fine. This isn't so bad, and, until the monster came out of his okay. stomach, and then I was horrified. Um, but there was something in that scene that really impacted me. Um, I think it was just the intense feeling, right? That intense kind of fear and shock, seeing the horror of the actors, you know, reacting to this. Um, it really had a huge impact on me. And I think I started kind of chasing that feeling in other books and movies and, um, you know, and, and wanting to recapture that, that feeling. I think that was the start of it. And then like many many other horror authors, LP, mm -hmm. I started reading Stephen King. And that really sucked me in um, as far as, you know, consuming horror books. Um, so I think those th those two things kind of really set me on my path to kind of en enjoying and seeking out um, horror. So we've been just, you mentioned Alien. We've been, we've been introducing our kids to horror kind of uh, monitored in a respect so we'll pick like a pg-13 movie a rated R movie if we kind of know what's in it and i remember it was just a few months ago that my wife and i like alien that they're ready for alien <laughs> and, and we watched it and i actually had this i can show you next time i uh we're in person together i filmed my son's reaction to the chest bursting scene mm -hmm. and it was like he was watching a commercial for kicks. He could not give a shit. He's so jaded at this point. I was like, wow. this is one of the most you know, iconic <laughs> scenes in horror movies in general. Right. It's like, yeah. So I don't wow. know. I guess generationally, um, they maintain that the scariest movie they've ever seen is Signs. 
and it's for that one scene where the alien mm. walks by yes. in that Brazilian birthday party. So we've yes. been chasing we've been chasing that high ever since. So you mentioned um, Stephen King. Were there? I read Carrie at the same time I was reading Goosebumps. What was your what were your formative Stephen King books? So um, the so the main book that kind of stayed with me and to your point is because I read it, you know, there's a certain part of your life where the what you take in has an outside influence on you. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I read Misery, I guess, at that age, because it really is like the book I've kind of kept going back to. Okay. And that I've thought about a lot. Can I stop um, you for just a second? Sure. Is it a dog-eared book? It is absolutely a dog-eared nightmare. LP. Okay. Thank you for that. Yes. Anyway, continue. <laughs> um, yeah, I um, I read that. And, it, you know, I, part of it was we didn't have that many books growing up. And so I just reread it all the time. Okay. Um, but like I realize now, I, I, I think it had an impact on um, how, how I write. Because... Okay. In misery, you know, we're so deep into Paul Sheldon's um, kind of mind into what he's going through and his and his his pains and his being tortured, and like I realize now in my writing, I'm I'm trying to recapture some of that because like in the ghost mm -hmm. tracks, we just stay with the main character the entire time. We don't really deviate too much. Okay. Um, and also, I mean, I just love that the the scares were just from a person, just a regular person there was nothing supernatural about it and that is to me that's the scariest thing when there's just a normal person who is terrorizing um someone else and i think that um you know that is the book that really kind of did it for me okay and that makes total sense having read the ghost tracks um a lot of your monsters start out kind of in scooby-doo fashion like mm -hmm. This is something supernatural, and then yes. you find out maybe that's not the case. So I could definitely see that thread, you know, between that human monster and what you created with the ghost tracks. So is it horror fiction bled into horror movies, or are you just a, a horror guy now? Would you consider yourself? Yeah, I would just say in general a, a horror guy. Um, you know, I I would say I'm, I don't think I'm as obsessive. I think as some of my other kind of other friends in that mm -hmm. regard i definitely enjoy it but i enjoy like mysteries a lot too which you could again probably tell from reading reading the two books um i just enjoy like not understanding what's going on you know is there something underneath that's not being revealed and like you know i guess my my goal was yeah to combine the mystery with the horror stuff um but yeah in general i i just love all you know we i actually just watch the uh, the most recent scream what would you think about it have you seen it i have not no it's it's on our we've purchased it but we're working our kids through so we just got through the um jiffy pop scene and scream the original scream yes we're, we're kind of giving them morsels because um, mm. i i don't think we're at the point where we can just kind of put scream on and just sit back as parents and watch their reactions to it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. And you're, 
kind of an interesting person in, I'd say writing in general, but horror, if you Google your name, not a lot pops up before the ghost tracks. Yes. So what were you a, a writer at 20, a frustrated writer at 25, 35? Like, I don't want to, I mean, you look much younger than your age, which I know, and I'm not going to share with the audience. I'm I'm 47, so that that's how old I am. Okay, we're so, in the same we're in the same decade now. <laughs> hey, belated happy birthday! Thank you. Yeah, how's it so, feel to be 40? It felt, um, it's you know it's I was told when you turn 30 things are going to change, like your body's going to be different, and I was like I prepared myself for that. I was like all right, and nothing through my 30s felt different, so I kind of feel like 40 is the same. I do have to plan how I'm going to tie my shoes because I can't just bend over and tie them. Mm. It's like I need a wall or something to keep me from falling over. Uh, but that's been for a couple of years. So I don't know if that's a 40 mm. thing, but. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm, I'm going to get back to your question here in a minute about where I was, but you know, just related to writing, I will tell you that as I've gotten older, and I'm sure we'll talk about process later on, but um, it has been more difficult to get writing done as I've gotten older. Okay. Um, with the ghost tracks, I would get up at five in the morning, get some work in before work, stay up till one, you know. Um, I tried to do that with The Devil's Promise just a few years later, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm dying over. I need sleep. I need a rest. So that's that's kind of, I think, the only way that age has impacted me writing-wise so far. But it is definitely harder to get up, to stay up. Um, so, you know, I'm not trying to scare you, <laughs> but, I, but I've, I've felt it a little bit, right? Um, so, yeah, my story is a, a little weird. Um, so um, I have written nothing before The Ghost Tracks. The Ghost Tracks is the very first thing I've ever written. Not even a short um, story? No short stories, nothing. It's just the ghost tracks. Wow. And I know it's, it's weird. And I should have LP. I should have started okay. with short stories because I, I don't know why I just had it in my head. I'm going to try to write a book and I definitely bit off more than I could chew. Um, I, you know, I'd wanted to for a long time, um, you know, you know, with, with writing for me personally, there are definitely a lot of times where I'm like questioning, oh, how good is this? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, to start, you have to have a little bit of an ego for me. Like the reason it started is because I would see maybe some not so great movies or read a not so great book. And I thought I could at least be as bad as this. I really feel like maybe if I tried really hard. And so I said, oh, I'm going to give it a go. I'm glad it's you saying this. I agree totally, but Celso is the one who's saying it. <laughs> it's, yeah, I'll believe I, I have all, all, all the, the self-doubt out, outweighs it. I mean, kind of evens it out, right? Um, so, you know, but the, the laugh was on me, LP, because I started, and then of course it's garbage. You know, it's just complete and utter garbage. I read a bunch of writing books. I started and, you know, it wasn't at all what I imagined in my head, you know? And so I, I was horrified. I put it away. It would seem just too hard to do. And so, but every once in a while I get the itch and I'd revisit it and I would give it another go, put it away again. Was this went ghost, on for years. Is it the okay? ghost tracks the whole time or? So it was the ghost tracks, except 
it was an iteration of the ghost tracks that no longer exist. Okay. It was what became the ghost tracks. Okay. Because what I, my original idea was ended up being nothing of what the ghost tracks actually was. And I'll just tell you briefly, it was like the main idea was something that in now in the ghost tracks is just takes up a little bit. It's the idea of, I like the idea of forcing a haunting, meaning I'm going to put a body in my enemy's house and see if a ghost comes and terrorizes them, right? And see if such a thing is even possible, okay? And that was what I started with. And I wrote a story about that. This book started about that. And I'm like, well, they they would probably call some like supernatural investigator to come like figure out why am I being haunted? Mm-hmm. And then along the way, I was like, well, this investigator seems more interesting. Maybe I should write a story about this person. And I kept some aspects of that first story and that became the ghost tracks. So when I was putting it away, it was that story, right? That mm-hmm. kind of eventually became the ghost tracks. And this went on for years, LP, like years. I would put it away sometimes two years at a pop. And then eventually I got to the point where I said, I'm just going to finish it. I don't care. I don't care how bad it is. I'm just going to finish it. And finishing it changed everything. Okay. Finishing it gave me the confidence to be like, I have completed this full story let me try to fix it as best I can. And I did. And, um, and then, you know, the whole, the whole publishing aspect was a whole other kind of story. Okay. Let's transition into that because I will tell you as um, reading this book, and I think you gifted this to me at ghoulish last year when I was, however known I am now, I was a, a extremely unknown then outside of like the no sleep podcast. So, um, you gave it to me. It's actually right here beside me. And um, when I read this, I think we spoke a little about a little bit about um, that. This was like an, and correct me. I'm gonna say what I remember. Correct me <laughs> after I say it. This was like a competitive, right? This was mm-hmm. so. Reading it, I felt like you know, there's every chapter not every chapter but there definitely is um a cliffhanger aspect that for the competitive nature of how this um, work was produced as you know an audience voting on this to move forward which you can explain that um yeah i'd want to know what happens next so it's a kind of a fascinating book for a, a way for a book to come together that coming out of this competition where it's you're giving increments in and kind of morsels of the story at a time, which in, to rise above whatever else is there, you, you have to keep the tension high and you have to keep the readers wanting to know what happened next. So can you just share with us the unique way this story came to fruition? Sure. So that's so that's kind of what happened, but not exactly. So okay. I'll, I'll tell you kind of how it went down. So um, right, I mean, you know, LP, there's so much luck that goes into stuff like this, right? Um, so right when I felt pretty good about the book, I stumbled across Ink Shares, which is the name of the publisher, and they just so happened to be having a contest for specifically for horror books. I was like, well, I have a horror book. Like, maybe maybe I should enter into this. So, so the way that it worked is you would upload the first, like, three or four chapters. Okay. And based on those three or four chapters, um, 
you would try to entice people to pre-order the book. Okay. And then the people who got like the top, the books that got like the top three pre-orders would be published. So it wasn't kind of like going along. It was just here are the first three chapters and you're trying to convince strangers to pre-order a book that may not even get made. Right. If yep. I wasn't one of the top three, everyone just gets their money back and it's over. I just go home and lick my wounds. Right. So basically what I had to do is I went to all my friends and family who did not know I was writing anything. So this was a very uncomfortable situation, mm -hmm. LP. I said, hey, I wrote this book. <laughs> um, if you pre-order it, I'd appreciate it. If I get enough, maybe it'll get published. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just don't like asking people for stuff in general. So this was extremely uncomfortable for me. And so I went around to as many people as I could. Um, there were plenty of strangers who read it and who pre-ordered it. Excuse me one second. I'm going to leave that in. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, LP. <laughs> <clears throat> and so, yeah, so I got, um, I convinced people to pre-order it. Okay. And it ended up in the top three and that's how it got published. So that's a very unique to go from having thought about this idea for how many years would you assign to like the ghost tracks <clears throat> itself? I'm going to say at least six. Okay. To now being like the, one of the top three vote getters for this ThinkShares um, platform, which led to publication and uh, inter international Latino book award. I got the verb that, right. That is right. That, that is right. And you know, the ThinkShares, you know, I got, again, some of this is just luck, um, but the CEO, um, Adam Gomelin, who's, who's a very nice guy, um, he took interest in the ghost tracks and he decided to, he wanted to edit it himself personally, which was great because I got a lot of, you know, I got to work with him very closely. He had a lot of great suggestions. He was a huge believer in the book from the very beginning. And it was just great having that kind of support. And, uh, you know, he still believes in the, the books and these characters. He was gung-ho about doing um, The Devil's Promise. So um, I'm grateful to them for, for believing in the book so much. So let's, um, I'm actually going to kind of shift things around from how we had this planned, but mm -hmm. the ghost tracks itself. Okay. So a little background. I claim San Antonio because I probably lived here more than any other city in my life. Um, mm -hmm. A mil military family. So we moved around a lot, but <clears throat> I do remember when we were stationed down at Lackland uh, many years ago, our neighbors came back from the ghost tracks and they had baby powder on their rear bumper <laughs> and there yeah. were there were handprints and i probably carried that story with me for the next 20 25 years maybe until you and i met and i got a little more background about you know how the ghost tracks was actually was it i'll let you tell the story it was from another state somehow it got conflagrated with san antonio lore and it just became part of san antonio history so where was your initial idea for the ghost tracks kind of what did you learn along the way so <clears throat> my the original kind of thought process was um i knew i knew i wanted to do something about the ghost tracks just because it's such a san antonio staple um, so I had that in the back of my mind. I, I didn't know how specifically to work into a story. I just know I wanted to do it. 
um, you know, in trying to think of characters for the book, I had often kind of thought about, I'm not sure why, but children who were born addicted to drugs. I often thought about like what happened to what happens to them when they grow up and know what happened to them. How do they react to this knowing what their parents did? Right. Um, and then I had that idea about kind of like this forced haunting. So I had three completely separate ideas. And um, I'm like, well, let me see if I can find a way to force them all together into a coherent story. And that was the impetus for the ghost track. So that was the original thought process. And then as I started to kind of outline what I thought the book could be, it became kind of clearer what the story would be. So how soon into kind of producing this work? I mean, growing up in San Antonio, um, through my kind of like formative years, um, I, I departed San Antonio thinking the ghost tracks was a real thing. So <laughs> were you, had you already discovered that the ghost tracks were borrowed kind of lore sure. when you started well, writing? So let me just tell you, LP, I, despite the books that I write, I am not really a believer in the supernatural and I never really have been. So like, I didn't need to kind of like learn that. I just kind of assume like there aren't really ghost children at the ghost tracks, like pushing cars over. Right. Mm -hmm. So now I was already well on board with that. You know, none of it was really true. And so you can fill in this blank, but I think, um, the actual story happened in Utah, correct? You, that's right. It happened in Utah. Um, this um, school bus went over some, stalled on some railroad tracks, and a train came by and killed all the children inside. And there's varying like reasons or theories as to why San Antonio took that story as their own. Um, but one of the reasons, apparently, is because um, they took a picture of where it happened in Utah. And it looked exactly like that same intersection here in San Antonio. They're like, oh, hey, look, that's there at Shane and Villa Main Road. And so somehow over time, we kind of adopted it as our own. But also there was a lot of local coverage of that Utah story. So because it was just kind of everyone's hearing about it all the time, it looked just like that intersection. We kind of adopted it as, as our own. But also because there's like a little bit of a, you know, a decline it worked and so everything kind of led led lend itself to that story becoming true here in san antonio well i want to thank you for ruining it for me because i had no idea <laughs> until i read your book i was actually getting uh you know coming back to san antonio i was like oh cool i'll take my kids to the ghost tracks and then i read this book and find out none of that's true <laughs> but, i'm sorry i'm sorry to pop your balloon lp well really, you know they, they covered it over i don't know if you know that now it doesn't work oh, anymore. It, it's not there okay so yeah, I think the um, I don't know if it was like the local like neighborhoods or whoever, but you know there was a long line during Halloween to go do the ghost tracks, and the locals I don't think they cared for it, and so they paved it to even it out now. So if you go and you put your car in neutral, and like for those who don't know the story, I don't think we've really kind of explained fully the story, but go for it. The, yeah, the the way the story goes is, um, if you go or if you went and you put your vehicle in neutral um, before you get to the tracks, 
your car would be pushed over the railroad tracks by the ghost of the children who died there because they're trying to prevent other people from having the same fate that befell them. And so line after line of cars would go and they would get pushed over the railroad tracks. And when you got to the other side, if you sprinkled baby powder on the rear of your car, you'd see little tiny handprints. Um, but, you know, really you're just seeing your own handprints whenever you shut your trunk and, and all that. So that, that's the basic story of the, of the ghost tracks. But now because they leveled the street, they won't, it won't do it anymore. I wonder why they were always tiny. If it's like you well, and they, me. they, yeah, they weren't. I think people just saw handprints and just kind of like the, let their mind do the rest. They look small to me. It must be the ghost kids kind of kind of thing but you know i you know i talk a little in the book about how much that the people of san antonio really want to believe this right um but i think you know people even now even with it not working anymore like the current uh the local newspaper has a a poll every year of the favorite urban legend ghost tracks is still number one with the bullet like it's just ingrained in people's people's minds here in san antonio so we're going to talk about um san antonio kind of having a horror movement or a moment excuse me in a little mm -hmm. bit um, but I'm in, I am interested in, you know, you grew up, you said from your formative years as a consumer of horror, and then at some point the switch flipped to a producer of horror and has that kind of, um, that desire to contribute to lore, to kind of even expand on it with the ghost tracks, adding your own perspective on it. Has that been with you the whole time? Like for the ghost track specifically, you mean, or just kind of in general telling stories? I guess like you, you said, you're a horror guy, not to the extent that some of our friends, maybe, <laughs> maybe some ghoulish friends you and I have uh, in common, yeah, yeah. but now you're, now you create horror. Yeah. So where did, you know, as I did, I've always been interested in it. I've all, you know, from a, my very first story I ever wrote was horror. Um, so I've been a horror producer since I was a, a child, I'm just kind mm -hmm. of interested in at what point, I, I think you, you know, you kind of covered it in maybe reading or seeing things and thinking like, you know, I can do at least this bad. So <laughs> was that yeah. a, a switch that flipped in you? Yeah. So yes. Yes. So it, you know, I always kind of like, like a lot of people, I have a habit of watching movies and like, oh, they should have done this or should have done that. Which, you know, it is easy to throw fruit from the cheap seats, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody can do that. Um, but I always felt like, man, I, that would have been a so much more interesting angle. Why, maybe I should try something like that. And, you know, it just cause it's always there. And uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that is those thoughts is kind of why I started in the first place. But as far as horror specifically, it in my mind, it gives you such a wide palette of colors to work with right because you can have whatever you want you can have heartfelt moments for sure and juxtapose that with the most gross horrific act and i love that right i love that um not that you can't do that in other genres or straight literary fiction but I just feel like there's just so much to pull from. Um, and it's kind of kind of freeing as a creator. 
of I can have like these two best friends loving each other and caring about each other. And I can also have this murderous psychopath a few chapters later. And, you know, Stephen King is great at doing that. He's always displaying these great friendships between, you know, children and, and um, you know, adults or whatever, very moving and touching and these, you know, terrible, terrible things. And that is why of all the genres, I think it really spoke to me. I, I wanted to do something horror for that, that reason. That was perfect. And it leads perfectly into our first ad read. Which, <laughs> which Celso has agreed to, to read for us. So um, our very first sponsor, take it away, Celso. Okay. So, and I have to tell you, OPM, I'm glad it's a, I'm glad it's a sponsor for a product that I actually use. So this is great. All right. Dog-Eared Nightmares would like to thank its very first sponsor, the Weighted Blanket of the Month. Today, it seems like there is a monthly delivery service for everything, from whiskey to dog food, toilet paper to laundry detergent. If you're anything like me, you spend most of your free time shopping for weighted blankets. I can't tell you how many bursts I've missed in the weighted blanket aisle of my local TJ Maxx, all for a poor quality blanket that feels totally non-personalized. That's where the weighted blanket of the month comes in. No more missed milestones, no more fist fights at TJ Maxx. Just fill out a simple 40 page survey of your weighted blanket preferences and the weighted blanket of the month does all the rest. Your first weighted blanket will arrive within weeks. And here's the best part. The weighted blankets increase in weight each month. This is non-negotiable. They will get heavier each month. I haven't left my house in September of last year, and I couldn't be happier about it. Thank you. And thank you for reading that straight. Absolutely. It's the only way to read it. Um, thank you to the weighted blanket of the month. Go ahead and Google <laughs> them and see what you find yeah all right so i am interested especially you know we talked about how the ghost tracks came to be mm -hmm. um and your journey kind of writing in general uh there is a there's a plotter pantser community i would say i'm in between i, yeah. I def definitely started as a pantser and have um, all the unfinished novels in my hard drive to prove it so I'm kind of somewhere in between. What is your personal, where do you land? Are you firmly in one camp or another, or are you an in-betweener like me? Sure. I, I am, I'm a leaner towards a plotter. I definitely lean towards plotting, but there's a lot of pantsing going on. So my general, my general idea is this. I like to kind of know where I'm going. So I am not a detailed outliner at all. I, I, I see other writers have these like huge outlines and I there's just no way I could ever do anything like that. I'll do something very simple. I'll put a two or three line synopsis of each chapter and I'll try to get, and yeah, and I'll try to get to the end as best I can. And even then there's like gaps. I'm like, oh, I don't know what happens here, but I know eventually this is going to happen. I try to have the endings because you know, both of these books have multiple endings um, in kind of ready to go because the endings are kind of the hardest part. So I don't want to start without having a pretty good idea where it's going to end. So 
in that regard, I am definitely kind of a plotter. But invariably, and I'm sure you, you know, I've experienced this too, you get into it and things change, right? Um, but like, I, I, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier about um, the chapters ending on cliffhangers. So, you know, it's, it's an old trick, but it is, it works because it, it creates a propulsive feeling that you kind of, kind of have to see what happens next, but it is not so easy to have something like that peppered throughout the book, right? It, it takes some doing and some planning. So um, here's where the, here's where the, the pantsing comes in. Sometimes I'll get to the end of a chapter and I don't have anything and I'll just think to myself, what is the craziest thing that could happen? I'm not going to worry about explaining it right now. What is the most outrageous thing? Okay, what if he sees a demon licking a baby? Okay, that sounds good to me. I'm going to put it in here and I'll explain it later on. And so then I have to pants it. Okay, how am I going to explain this now? But sometimes putting myself in that awkward position generates better story ideas, right? And so then I'll still try to keep the general like path I was on and incorporate, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to say it's because of this, but I feel like it enriches the story. So I, I definitely start off the, the story as a, as a planner, but I definitely, or as a plotter, but lots of pantsing in between. I think we're very similar in that way. I started as a pantser for the most part. <clears throat> and then, you know, you, you get to that because you have the, 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 the Genesis, like the idea that this may be um, how the ghost tracks came to you. For me, it's like, you know, I, I just imagine like a, a seed entering my mind and like planting roots. And the next thing you know, I've got these characters. I've got the story. After kind of processing it, I ha might have an ending. It's that middle part. That, mm, yeah. Um, and so I would oftentimes write that beginning knowing where I wanted to end up, but the middle part felt limp compared to that initial idea. So sure. for my own work for uh, Stargazers, I wrote um, maybe only like four pages in a notebook were three to four lines for each chapter. And it's a novella, so it's shorter. And I, it was valuable to come back to that when I felt that um, that middle point where I would be lost if I was pantsing, I had at least in that moment of inspiration when I sat down and mapped out Stargazers. Um, I really hate talking about myself right now. I'm just trying to commiserate with you a little bit. But when I, I, I mapped <laughs> it out, because that inspiration, you're like, you feel like if you don't capture, I just clapped. I'm probably not supposed to do that in the podcast. Um, that inspiration, if you don't capture it, like little bits and pieces of it fall away. So I found it very valuable. Like you said, just if you have kind of a, a couple sentences, a few sentences for every chapter during that yeah. moment of inspiration, when inspiration strikes you, wherever it is, out walking the dogs, wherever you're at, write it out as soon as you can, because you're going to be at some point 25,000 words in and wishing you had access to um, that source again and it, it may be a tenuous source you may only have it for a limited amount of time like 
um, the universe kind of giving you a, a little um, taste of something that if you don't capture it, it's going to be hard to recover. Um, so I've starting with stargazers and kind of continuing forward, um, kind of anything over a short story length, I will map out each chapter and they can get rearranged stuff changes. Like you said, um, I think in stargazers, I move chapters around and stuff that sounded great in the beginning, the characters made different choices. And so it didn't sound so great when, you know, I progressed through the story. So I think, uh, it's, it's refreshing to hear somebody that kind of has the same, you know, flexibility. And, you know, there's always the, the edit. There's the whatever you produce initially on the second pass, you know, kind of reading it from beginning to end. You're going to see the stuff that seemed like a good idea in the moment. And like, this is the sore thumb. This really sticks out in this book. Right. Yeah. You said a lot of interesting things and all that, um, but one of the things you said, which is so true, is about inspiration striking to make sure you get it down. And it doesn't have to be like a huge plot point, like sometimes random, like uh, an interesting thought a character might have or a line of dialogue. And, you know, there have been so many times I'm like, oh, I'll remember that. And of course I, I didn't. And, you know, when I'll, I know with like the devil's promise, I got kind of to the end and not that the character's having deep thoughts per se, but he's thinking about things. And there were like multiple lines that I used that I had written in the past year that I just typed in my phone real quick. I'm like, oh, that'd be interesting if he said something like that. And then when it came time to write that part, I didn't have to start from scratch because I had random things throughout to pull from, you know? So it's really helpful to do that. Um, so getting getting back to Stargazers for a minute. So I, I'm assuming... Maybe I shouldn't assume this, that if someone is listening to this podcast, they are familiar with you and have read Stargazers. If but not, on the off chance, if that's not should. true, then please read Stargazers because I've read it. It's fantastic. Um, I was blown away. And I'm not just saying this because I know LP and he's, we're both from here, but it was one of my top books of uh, uh, that year when I read it. And I just loved it so much. So I've been fortunate enough to have a sneak peek at at the next project, and it's just as good, if not better. So I, I encourage everyone to read read Stargazers. I'm putting my full endorsement behind it. Thank you. That went perfectly. Right. Pivoting to talk about me. <laughs> so you've got you've got two projects. Uh, so you had the Ghost Tracks, and now we have the sequel, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. Did your I want to talk about your daily goals. Did they change from one to the next or were they pretty similar? Well, that's not, that's not a, an easy answer because I wrote most of the devil's promise during lockdown. So it was a completely different situation. Um, I, you know, I really didn't know what I was going to do next. And then, you know, the lockdown kind of happens. I'm like, well, let me work on something. Let me, let me, I wasn't sure there'd be another ghost tracks book. But I'm like, well, let me write, let me write one just in case, which I'm glad I did. Um, but it was, you know, I had plenty of time on my hands, so we weren't doing anything. So I was able to knock out a big chunk of it. Um, so at that time I was writing, you know, more than I normally would have, but things are different now. Right. So now I'm back in the office, you know, um, my daughter's going to high school 
next year and I'm trying to spend as much time with her as I can. And she's got a bunch of athletic stuff that I don't want to miss. Um, you know, just everyday life, you know, every, every, every writer kind of has this. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it is a lot harder to come by writing time now. And so, and to compound things, I am a very, very slow writer. Um, and, you know, because I'm writing mystery ish kind of things, the twists and turns and all that, it, it, it takes a while for me to work all this out. So that's a long way of saying, man, if I get 300 words in a day at this point, I'll take it, okay. right? I will absolutely take it because the honest truth is there are some days I'm not writing anything, but I get home at 10 o'clock at night and I'm just exhausted and that's it. So um, on the weekends, maybe I'll get it to a thousand pages because I have a, a day to myself or half a day to myself or something. A thousand pages is incredible. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. A thousand words. So um, it, it's hard. So, and to be perfectly honest, um, I'm being fairly irresponsible and playing the new Legend of Zelda game quite a bit. So th this is an issue, right? So I want you to remind me, LP, when I'm complaining in two years, I don't have a new book out. Remind okay. me about how I was irresponsible and played Zelda too much. So. Got it. Uh, yeah. For me, it, it was World of Warcraft. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, you've seen how tall I am in person. Right? <laughs> we're, we're similar heights. So, we're similar I mean, height. Now imagine yeah. that almost 200 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah. That oh. was World of Warcraft. Um, mm. So I would uh, go to Chipotle. I was in Colorado at the time, so it wasn't a lot of good Mexican restaurants. Go mm. to Chipotle consume one entire burrito and then have half of another one and then half would be later on that night so i've been there time i could have spent writing yeah um and um so i think your daily goals uh in discussing that that's valuable because i, I just see in kind of the writing twitter people will lament i only did 100 words today or 300 words today to me that's progress like if you're moving Absolutely. the story forward if it's a meaningful 100 words, then those are just as good as, you know, 10 pages of filler. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, you know, I, I do feel like, you know, you know, it's kind of hard because, you know, Twitter's not real life, but it, it feels like it sometimes because it's easy to look at what people are doing and, and feel terrible. Like, oh my God, look, look, they finished half their book in two days. Oh my, look at me. I'm garbage. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but to your point, you know, like I've been kind of around it long enough now to, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to badmouth anybody, but to read some of those books where they were writing so fast and I'm like, wow, maybe they should have taken some more time. Right. Yeah. Um, but you're right. It's the quality. Like if I write, yeah, hundred, 200, 300 words, I feel pretty good about, I'm happy. It, it's fine. You know? Um, so I, I agree wholeheartedly about the quality of a quantity thing. After we're done recording, we can badmouth them. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll do. We'll do, Elfie. Okay. I do want to go just off script a little bit here to ask because uh, this is kind of a mental thing I thought of. Like Erasmo, Rat, two of the, you know, the main characters in Ghost Tracks. Were those, how much of you, how much of your friends growing up, are these totally concocted characters? So Rat... Um, is based 
on a friend of mine in the sense that he is a true believer. Okay. Right. He's a true believer in that he believes everything. He's all in on the ghost, supernatural. And I had a friend very much like that. And as I said earlier, like, I don't really believe that stuff. And so we were kind of, and he was my best friend. So we weren't at odds or anything. It was just an interesting juxtaposition. Erasmus just kind of just fabricated. Um, okay. He, and this kind of goes back to writing, right? Like I definitely put a lot of work into humanizing him and giving him problems and issues and obviously feeling abandoned and all that stuff. But that's to offset the fact that I need him to perform certain functions in the plot. So the the actions that he takes and the way he's feeling is often just a function of, I need to put him in this situation so that this twist will happen kind of thing. So the all the character work is hopefully kind of disguises the plot functions that he's I need him to perform to make the story work right so I want to talk about this um and I didn't write it in our our notes so uh, this is all complimentary so you can just sit back and smile as I'm telling you these things okay. you know I, I read a lot of horror it's 95 percent of what I consume and I there are books I love um what I've found in the past couple of years, especially as I've become more involved in the community as a writer, there are so many books where you don't care enough about the characters to care when something bad happens to them. Mm. And so in the ghost tracks with Erasmo, um, you know, that's, it's just constantly there. There's so many reasons to root for him, to get mad at him when he makes a choice that he shouldn't maybe you, you know, and he's he's 17, right? In this yes, 17, right. So you're like, uh, like don't you know, don't do that. Um, and I feel like that's something that is often missed in I would say writing in general, but you know, I mostly read horror. So I'll get, you know, read a book that's got so much praise. And like I said, we'll talk about these people afterwards. I'm not gonna make it <laughs> this podcast. I'll read a book that's been like, you know, lauded, so much praise, and I'm like it's the action started on page one and I had no time to care about who it happened to. So when the bad thing happens to that person, I'm not invested. Like it doesn't matter. It's just like, you know, um, I don't identify with them in any way, but in, in Rasmo, maybe, I don't know, having grown up in San Antonio and, you know, him being a Latino teenager, there's some things that are kind of automatic, but just uh, feeling connected in his family situation and maybe going to meet somebody at a certain, you know, some of the people he meets, you're like, no, don't do that. I'm like, it's the equivalent of like being in a theater and pointing at the screen and saying no. Um, So I think that your investment in making the character someone we care about, um, it really pays dividends because you do put him through some shit. I remember yeah. one, like one, uh, you pro- you and I probably talked about this um, back at the first Ghoulish, um, where this was, you know, this was advertised as YA. And I mm. remember reading it and saying, what? <laughs> there, yeah. like, there is a very graphic, yeah. very long fight yes. that involves knives. And, you know, I'm like, okay, YA, that'll, you know, that'll help 
get it to a certain audience, but I'm reading it as a consumer. I'm like, this, this is pretty graphic. Um, but yeah. also at that point, like I was, I was so rooting for him, rooting for rat that, you know, as we're going through, um, you know, all the bad stuff that invariably, invariably happens in a horror book. Sure. <clears throat> especially how you frame this one that, you know, it, in addition to how you kind of, um, like you said, you end a chapter in a way that makes you want to read the next chapter. And you rarely pull back from that. I don't know how fast I read this, but it was probably under three days because I just had to know. But the reason I had to know is because I cared about the characters. So that's all the praise you're getting. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, well, I appreciate that a lot, LP. I, I, you know, I did, that was important to me because I'm, I'm, I'm like you, you know, I, I, I read a lot of books and, you know, I, I did make note of what I was aspiring to do, right? Um, and, you know, some authors just handle it beautifully. But sometimes you learn a lot from from the books that could be better, right? And like, okay, I'm going to try not to fall into this trap. And so, um, you know, and, you know, part of it is kind of what you said. It's it's giving reasons to root for them. But also, like, yeah, m making bad decisions because people are going to make bad decisions. And especially a young person like him, but in general, right? Like people are screwed up for whatever reason, right? You could pick many reasons why somebody, um, you know, is 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 not thinking the, the way they should, but I think it it enhances it. Like when you know someone's making a mistake, I think it it's, it's kind of a powerful feeling, I think, to like know more than the character sometimes, because like one, one of the, it's not like a kind of running gag exactly, but, Erasmus is often wrong about what is going on. Like mm -hmm. he's not the best paranormal investigator here. Um, and I, I like that aspect of it too. And him slowly, these horrifying realizations that he eventually kind of comes to. Do you think he's a believer now? I think it's like a, it's an ongoing kind of like process for him of what he's believing or, or, or not believing at any given time i think he's i think he's a believer but i think he's skeptical at heart that most things are probably not supernatural i think he says some version of this in the devil's promise and he needs kind of proof if something is but he i think he believes that there there's the possibility of that out there so um i have certain phrases in the ghost tracks that i've underlined just different kind of artistic flourishes that you as a writer kind of achieved and some stuff I put like in my toolkit moving forward. But I am curious if you had a specific passage in the ghost tracks that you thought either showed your writing prowess, prowess excuse me, or showed something um, maybe, maybe well executed about the characters that you could share with us. So, well, you know, my favorite passages are actually kind of spoiler heavy and wouldn't make sense without a whole bunch of context which okay. i don't want to bore anybody with but i will read i will read a part that um is kind of important to me only because part of the reason that i didn't answer your question fully i now realize when you asked about the impetus for the ghost tracks i was at the ghost tracks and it witnessed a car accident oh wow and that car accident really it was scary at the time it was an ugly accident and um it stayed with me and i was like, i wonder if i could work a car accident into the ghost tracks and that kind of germ 
resulted in this. And so I I like the passage just because it's the fully realized kind of, you know, ending of of that kind of germ. So I'll read I'll read what happened to him at the ghost tracks. Um, just to set a little bit of context, there had just been an accident and he had to jump out of the way and he ends up on the actual ghost tracks themselves. And as he's laying there unable to move, another car is coming about to run him over, right? Um, the sound of the engine was closer now. He gritted his teeth and told himself that he wasn't spinning endlessly. No, he was face down in the middle of the street, about to die. Erasmo brought his elbows up to his side and pushed in a desperate attempt to crawl. No movement. A pale glow from the car's headlights spread over him. He tried again, his knees grinding into the asphalt, and this time managed to move forward a few inches. The car was close now. Soon it would crush him. It was then that he felt tiny probing fingers on his body. At first they were hesitant, as if doubtful of his tangibility. But then they suddenly hardened, and he could feel the unnatural strength behind the miniature grips that took hold of him. His body jerked forward, the asphalt scraping against his skin. He was about to cry out in pain, but then his body lurched again. Erasmo's mind reeled. Could this be happening? Or was he unconscious on the side of the road, dreaming? Or perhaps he was at this very moment lying crushed under the car, and this illusion was his mind's final spasm of consciousness. Even as Erasmo felt himself being dragged along, he wasn't entirely sure. But then voices, children's voices, gentle and lyrical, whispered all around him. The words flowed together, a tapestry of soothing intonations. Listening to them, he knew this was real. So another reason I like that part is because at various parts of the book, it is unclear if we're telling us the truth about what happened at the ghost tracks. Or if he's even telling himself the truth about what happened at the ghost tracks. Um, so that's that's another reason I kind of enjoyed that that passage. So to whatever audience I have at this point, if you heard Celso read that and you didn't automatically buy this book, please send me your address so I can come to your house and punch you in the face. <laughs> okay. Um so I, I kind of I, I can kind of um, commiserate with Erasmo in that sense that he came out of that mystical experience and he still had these doubts and reservations and, you know, these questions moving forward. <clears throat> I lived on the uh, island of Guam for a few years and we had stuff happen and I'm a skeptic as well that I can't explain to this day. There's nothing rational that could explain how those things happened. And yet I'm still asking for more proof. So sure. I think like as a character that it's, it is frustrating in the sense that you just want him to believe you want him to embrace it. But also it's one of those things that keep you turning the page. Is this going to be the moment where he finally kind of submits to all of these different inputs that, that um, suggest that this is a real thing. So sure. Um, great job, man. Just writing that character. He's uh, so well-formed, well-thought-out. 
with his flaws. And as a writer, that's difficult for me. I, I kind of, um, you know, reading um, your work, reading others, I find that sometimes that's something I pull back on when I write a character, they're the best version of themselves. So giving them flaws, when I was taking notes, reading your book, that's something that I've carried with me. I do want to pivot now because I am one of, how many people have read The Devil's Promise? Oh man, like four or five, very, very few LP. I'm one of four or five people that have read The Devil's Promise, which is the sequel to The Ghost Tracks. And what I have said about The Ghost Tracks, multiply that times 10 for The Devil's Promise, because I think I said this in my blurb, like you do not pull off that pedal. Like when you hit the gas pedal, I'm like reading it, like, okay, this is going to be one of those in-between chapters where we kind of catch our breaths. That never happened. <laughs> that like, that was the entire thing was, uh, you know, it felt like it had the punch of a novella, but it was a novel length. So um, I wanted to ask, you've got, uh, I don't want to be too spoilery. So if I kind of get in that territory, just um, let me know that there are some old and new characters that are are that are mixed within this work, The Devil's Promise. And was that a deliberate choice? Because I was expecting some of the people that um, I became familiar with in <laughs> Ghost Tracks to have a, you know, uh, um, a very prominent role. So um, there, I, I, I'll tell you, when I, when the ghost tracks came out and people were talking about, oh, is there going to be another one? I'd love to see what happened with X, right? In the back of my mind, I was like, wow, X is over. We're never going to see X again. Mm -hmm. But I did begin to question myself like, oh, maybe I should bring X back. But, but I wanted to do something different. I didn't want it to be Ratten and Erasmo traipsing around San Antonio again. And so it was a deliberate choice to, you know, um, like Rat, who is a big part of the first book, we don't see him very much, um, mainly because there's a big mystery that is kind of resolved and there's a reason Rat isn't around. And because he's not around, I had to introduce new characters, right? So it was kind of like forced my hand into some of this. And so now instead of Rat, he is with a new character named Beto a lot who's like this curandera in training who's not who's very skeptical right about things she's kind of fulfilling a family kind of obligation mm -hmm. um so it was a little bit of both it was like you know um part of it was story related um the the gist of the story is that a client comes to him and he claims that he he believes he may have sold a soul to the devil when he was 17 he's a like 30 something year old man now and and the bill's coming due and I'm like, well, okay, if I do that, then he would have had to have fallen in with some person who facilitated this, some cult. And so there's characters from this group in the book. So some of it's out of necessity. Some of it's out of, I just want to do something different. Um, so it was, um, it, it took a while to find the right balance between old and new, I think. That makes sense now. Um, and I'm glad that you said X, was that rat? Or was that somebody else? Um, what did I say? You were saying X and then you said rat, because rat was the person I was expecting. Oh, 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 yeah. I was just saying X. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, in some of the other cases involving like Billy and Nora, okay. 
like you know like some people were like oh i want to find out what happened to nora's kid okay. or whatever got it i'm like you never find it out so um, for me it was it was rat i was yeah, kind of right. you know they were um it was such a a vital part to the ghost tracks that <laughs> yes i know and it is a vital part to the devil's promise in a different way in a different so, in, in a different way and believe me i I had some people look at me with side eye when I said, hey, he's barely coming out. Because for a lot of people, he was their favorite character. They told me I really liked Rat. I, I identified with Rat or I knew somebody like Rat or whatever. It, it did give me a little bit of heartburn, but I stuck to my I stuck to my plan for better or worse. I don't know if it's better or worse, but I it's just I just wanted to try it. And uh, you know, I took a few swings with the devil's promise. I just didn't want to be scared to to do something a little a little different, a little kind of toe in the line so um the devil's promise i would say the ghost tracks obviously that's rooted in san antonio because that's our lore whether or not it's yes. it's has any basis in fact but the devil's promise is a san antonio book like um you could put the tower of the americas on that if you want um i can as a san antonian i can i can picture this journey through different various parts of the town <clears throat> We have a community here that um, you and I talked about this before I hit record that maybe didn't exist a few years, but now San Antonio feels like it's um, I would I don't know if it's leading the charge in horror, but um, I, I mentioned to Sadie Hartman, uh, Mother Horror, like three in the last year, three San Antonio authors have been in a Nightworms box mm. and it just feels like San Antonio is kind of having a moment. We've got the Ghoulish Book Fest. We've got the bookstore. You, me, uh, Johnny, Max, Grace. There's so many people kind of within 100 miles of us. So what is it in your mind about this city that lends itself to horror? Well, first of all, I mean, I just think it's got so much interesting history, right? And a lot of it violent and bloody and, and spooky, right? Whether it be, you know, the missions, all these haunted hotels in town, which are always very interesting. Um, but I, I feel like another uh, another big reason, though, is because San Antonio has been underutilized historically as a setting. I really believe this. And that's part of the reason, like I wanted, I so badly wanted to set this in San Antonio I think people have had their fill of New York and LA. We've seen it a million times, but we haven't seen a lot of San Antonio. And I think people are getting the memo now, right? Even outside of horror, you know, Shea Serrano, who is a local writer, a New York Times bestselling writer, he has a new show out called Primo here in San Antonio. Um, and so I think that San Antonio is a setting. I think there's going to be more, both movies, TV shows, books. I think this is just, just the start in, in, in my mind. Um, what do you, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I think a lot of what you said is true. Like you look at our history and from, you know, of course there were, um, thousands of years of unrecorded history before that kind of when history starts is when things get nasty so yes. we're one of like the oldest cities in the country um and so a lot of that mixture of cultures automatically kind of generates it's like taking all of these different 
um, all this diff these different sources of lore, throwing into throwing them into a rock tumbler, and then all of these nuggets come out. So you get like the ghost tracks. Was it the Donkey Lady Bridge? Is the one? Donkey Lady Bridge right? Uh, La Llorona is one that's prominent here. There's so many of this mix of cultures, some native, some from Spain, and then the Europeans that came in. It's such a div diverse city. It's such an old city kind of for the United States. You know, uh, globally, it's still relatively young. Um, but for the United States, it's an old city. And I think it's it's talent that isn't willing to be denied anymore. Like someone like you who maybe considered yourself a writer for years, decades possibly, and saw an opportunity and just went for it. Um, Johnny kind of coming here and adapting this or adopting it as his, you know, his home and putting his imprint on the hill country um, with the spite house and all the stuff Max is doing. Um, I can't really look at another city like, tell me who's big from Boise. I have no idea, but you look at San Antonio and it's just like overflowing with talent. And it's, uh, I think it's just, we're for whatever reason now, we're not going to be denied. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, no, that's a great, those are all great points. Um, you know, the other thing is like, you know, I was telling you earlier that so much of this is luck, but I feel so fortunate now that we have a community here because I think it would just be kind of hard going on it on your own. You know what I mean? Without the support of like all of y'all and getting together at Max's and all that um, ghoulish book festival. I know I left there feeling so energized the last two times being around so many creative people and especially the local folks, um, you know, Johnny's been very generous, um, uh, you know, invited me to do certain things. Like, I just appreciate all of y'all. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful we have this community for sure. And you're right. I think it's only going to get bigger. Like, I really feel like, you know, as far as not being denied, like, I, I really hope, my biggest, biggest hope is that now that there is a group of us, that there's going to be other San Antonians who are going to be joining us, who are like, okay, well, there's... Let me let me reach out to to Max or OP or Sosa. How how do I get involved in this? How do I get this thing you know published? I I I can't believe this is going to be it. I think there's going to be a lot more. We need to start our own chapter. We do. We do. I know you've been banging that drum for a while. We need to we need to do some convincing. We really need Johnny to take the reins of it because yeah, he's a supermodel. <laughs> and he's super tall, so that yeah. always helps. Oh, don't spoiler. He's my next guest. Um, <laughs> devil's promise we've um what is your what's the release date do you have a tour planned any other details about the launch of that that people can get excited for so not too many details just yet the release date right now is september 26 um it might get pushed back but right now we're shooting for september 26 um max had mentioned doing something at, at ghoulish bookstore okay. so um hopefully we can get that worked out and i'll do something uh something big there hopefully at Max's and hopefully get everybody together because that's always a bunch of fun. Um, but um, other than that, I mean, I'm sure I'll do some more events um, here and there, but hopefully that'll be, that'll be the big one. Um, last question for you. What is your dog-eared book, literal or figuratively, 
So what is the book that you have come back to more than any other and mm -hmm. why? Well, now I'm afraid I already spoiled my answer earlier in the podcast. Misery. It was misery. But um, if, if you don't mind, I'm going to pivot to a movie that I go back to all the time because this relates to something that we talked about earlier. Have you ever seen Frailty with Bill Paxton? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this that movie really informed my writing um and you probably will be able to tell because in frailty they toe that line between is this father a psychopathic murderer or is an angel really telling him to kill these demons and throughout the entire movie they play it perfectly where you're not entirely certain what's happening and in essence, that is what I've tried to do in these two books. So um, misery for the reasons that I stated above or before, um, really always go back to it almost for almost like advice almost on, on how to do certain things. And frailty is a movie for, for very similar reasons. Rest in peace, Bill Paxton. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was so, so sad. He's one of my favorites, obviously. So that wraps up our very first episode, our very first guest. Um, so, so I want to thank you. Um, we talked about San Antonio and one of the other benefits of being part of this community is you can send a Twitter message to a, an award-winning author on a Wednesday to have him come onto the podcast that you just made on a Saturday and he'll say yes. So thank you Celso for uh, being the first um, and I hope to have you back after um, after I put a few dog-eared pages into the devil's promise I appreciate that thanks for having me on LP congratulations on your on your first episode I'm sure it's the first of many all right I'm going to be honest, this is probably my 10th attempt at creating this outro. So this is going to be done in one take. All right. So um, I want to thank Celso for joining me on whatever this journey becomes. Um, it's very convenient to have awesome writer friends at your disposal that you can kind of poke on a Wednesday, like I said in the episode, and by Saturday they're, you know, doing the podcast with you so we'll see where it goes what do i want um, dog-eared nightmares to be i'm coming at this from two angles as a writer of horror fiction and as a consumer of it as a writer i just want to have conversations with other writers you know i want to talk about choices they made i want to talk about their process and um Part of that is just the curiosity in me because writers do like to talk about themselves, but sometimes the conversations don't get to that specific of detail. You know, I've known writers who use sticky notes to plot out a manuscript, hundreds. I've known some that just sit down and write. Um, some people write long form in a composition book and then transfer that um, to the computer. 
So that part, it just interests me. As a consumer of horror, I'm so excited to talk about the books that I love. Um, I've talked to Agatha from She Wore Black, and a big, big shout out to her. Um, I'm only doing this because she was a sounding board for me and uh, someone who I got a lot of it, a lot of guidance and advice from. She talked about creating the content that you want if it doesn't exist in the world. There are a lot of great writing podcasts out there. She Wore Black is one of them. Um, Books in the Freezer is one of them. Talking Scared is one of them. Um, but to kind of hit every mark that I want in a podcast, I decided to create my own. I hope to keep it entertaining. I hope to keep it on the lighter side and fun. And I hope maybe you'll see a different side to these writers, these authors that maybe you didn't know before. So if you followed me this far, thank you. I hope you'll keep following me wherever this journey takes us.